Podcast Movies Edition, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to the Movies Podcast for June. Coming up, we look ahead to upcoming Blu-ray releases, we go to the cinema to review Prometheus, and we wrap up with some horror. And joining me on the Movies Podcast tonight is Steve Weathers, Chris Magnini, and Mark Botwright. Good evening, guys. Evening, Phil. Evening, fellas. Evening, Phil. And uh, we're going to kick off straight away with some uh, Blu-ray disc news. Coming out in August, uh, the two big titles of the month are The Hunger Games and Jaws. And uh, we discussed Jaws recently in a podcast, but um, Chris wasn't here, and I know he's got something to say about it. So, Chris, uh, you've got 30 seconds, and go. <laughs> It's the greatest film ever made, except for Gladiator. Uh, can't wait for it. Yeah, we've wanted this for a long, long time. It's one of the classics to come out on Blu-ray to make that high-def uh, transition. It's getting a cinematic release as well, which is nice to enjoy and savour properly at the big screen. Um, Vance Ware, the people who've seen some of this footage, the, the restored footage, say it's looking really, really good. Um, and hopefully it's not like a DNR mess and Universal is going to do us proud on this one. So, yeah, it's got to be there for that. Day one, we want Jaws. Bring it on! And then in September, uh, the Avengers and uh, Titanic. I don't think there's really much we can talk about Titanic, but moving on to Avengers, uh, I guess this is a must-buy for everybody. Yeah, definitely. Uh, And not just that. As of of today, it's just past... The Dark Knight is the third most successful film ever in the States, just behind Titanic, funnily enough. And the third most successful film ever worldwide as well, just behind Titanic and uh, Avatar. So it's uh, been an absolutely monumental success, 1.3 billion and counting. Um, so, yeah, I'm definitely up for that one come uh, come uh, September. And who'd have thought it from Joss Whedon as well? well? I'm glad he's finally got a hit, actually. He deserves it. I mean, the guy's been doing some good stuff for years, but... Let's face it, it was a tall tall order to get all those heroes into one movie and give them all, you know, a chance to shine and make it all work. And he did. The action was was splendid. The humour was there. It wasn't OTT when it came to that. Um, Robert Downey Jr. did not dominate the entire movie. Everyone got a chance to shine and it was just a glorious, um, massive event at the flicks. Loved every minute of it. Seen it several times and can't wait to see it again on Blu-ray. Moving on to October, uh, we've got a couple of real 80s classics. Uh, E.T. and Blade Runner, the 30th anniversary edition. Now, E.T., uh, Spielberg has said uh, that this is the original theatrical version that's going to appear on disc uh, and be digitally remastered. So uh, we get the guns again and we get rid of the walkie-talkies. Yeah, good news there. And a bit of a two-finger salute to his... uh best friend George Lucas I think because he basically says he made a massive mistake fiddling around with E.T. Uh, on his I think what, what, 10 years ago five years ago when they did the reissue um, and and has said and from now on he will never ever again change one of his movies he said that's the way it was when it was made and that's the way it's going to stay for posterity and uh, thank you Stephen I totally agree with you and I wish some other people would listen to what he's got to say and a Blade Runner 30th anniversary it seems a little bit um, strange seeing as we got the uh uh, that humongous set on uh, HD DVD and Blu-ray. Well, what four years ago now? Yeah, the briefcase set. Yeah, 
which was absolutely awesome. Had every version of the film going and a few possible made-up ones as well. Um, so yeah, so it's coming. It's coming out purely because the announcements of Blade Runner two. Now, it's just a cash in, isn't it? I think there's a couple of extra things on it, isn't it? This time, yeah, so it basically, is about a thousand still photos in high def, but basically, it's the same set that was released four years ago. I mean, it's being released because it's thirty years since Blade Runner, which I can't believe. I can't believe it's been thirty years. Yeah. Um, and in fact, when was it set in 2019? So in seven years, we're going to be in the same year the film set in. But, but you're right, Chris. They've announced a, a prequel, uh, sorry, a sequel that um, Woody Scott's intending to make after his next film. So it won't be shot into another two years. But um, I mean, there's been a few rumours about a female protagonist, uh, whether or not Harrison Ford will be in it. You know, it's going to be a genuine sequel, you know, not, not a sort of spin off or anything like that. Um, so interesting. Um, certainly, you can imagine what the. Uh, the visuals are going to look like with modern technology. It should look incredible, but uh, as long as it's got a good story, of course. Well, he's a master visual artist, and the, the original story was full of ambiguities and mysteries and enigmas, um, and he really should try and keep that kind of vogue going. Don't explain too much. Don't you know unravel the mysteries. Just give us more. You know, for a new age. You know, things are moving on. Technology's moved on. The concepts of um, replicants and you know, cloning, all that sort of stuff. You know, it's it's kind of old hat now, really. So he's got to really explore, you know, new avenues with it. Um, if anyone should go back to revisit Blade Runner, then it's got to be, obviously, Ridley Scott. I would have said that about the Alien Universe, and yes, we are going to talk about that a bit later on, Prometheus and all this sort of stuff. But, um, you know, if anyone's going to tackle Blade Runner, it's got to be Scott. Got to be. I wish he wouldn't, though. I really wish they'd just leave it alone. I think Blade Runner's a perfect film as it is. I don't want... He's already messed around with it enough, putting in things like the, the unicorn sequence and therefore making it explicit that, that Deckard's a replicant when I preferred it when it was ambiguous. Did you? Um, yes, definitely. In fact, I'm starting to warm to the old voiceover in a way. I, I do like the old voiceover. Yeah, the, I miss the, it the, now. The completely miffed off Harrison Ford. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I loved it, though. It was, it was purely... The, the the most disgruntled Philip Marlowe you could ever you know possibly imagine, but it's but if that's the that's the one you grew up with, that's the one that you know and love, isn't it? Although I've got to say I I do like the um, him being a replicant. Uh, I just love the whole because it all makes sense to me that the film now, in a way that it it, it didn't really the first time round. But uh, no, I love I love I love the the, the milieu, love the atmosphere to it, uh, you know neo noir future detective stuff. Um, and the concepts that it raises uh, are just well, they're, they're still mind-boggling even now. So, and of course, it can go off in any number of different directions now, can't it? So, yeah, yes, he says very emphatically. It it it's one of those films where I, when I first heard about the idea of a Blade Runner sequel, I, I thought you know it it sounds fantastic, and I got really excited. But then the more I thought about them, the more I kind of felt that. It's really not the kind of thing to go back to. It, I suppose because of the big themes in there, it's, it's kind of troublingly existential. It's, it's about humanity. It's about what constitutes a human. What is, it, what is the human condition? What are emotions? What are feelings? All these kind of things that you just kind of feel, can you really have a sequel to that? To that kind of film, can you really actually expand on that message anymore? Isn't the, you know, the ambiguity and the fact that it leaves you wanting more actually what makes the film great? You know, if, if you very good point, but I think because the um, you know, it, it's such a massive uh, spectrum of ideas, that's why you can go back to it and, and 
do something different, move on, explore a little bit further. You haven't got to come up with a million and one answers to these things. Now, as I say, we're going to talk about Prometheus a bit later on, but Scott certainly seems to have this idea right now that uh, I'm going to go back and revisit these things, which were, you know, great, you know, um, head scrambling mind F-U-C-Ks at the time and give you a little bit more because that universe I created there is so intoxicating and so detailed and rich and colourful and varied. Uh, so I think there's plenty of room to do it. It just depends if the story's good enough. Come up with a good story and you can go anywhere with it. You know, you've got the, the major themes there. Humanity, replicants, what, is it, what does it mean to be human as you so rightly addressed there. And this, this could, it could, could go on. You want another detective yarn, don't you? Or is he going to just go the Prometheus route and tell a completely different story, but just sort of set in that world? Have to wait and see. But I, I'm not against the idea. Didn't they? Wasn't there a book sequel to it a while ago? Yeah, there was. Which flopped miserably. Yeah, I think it was called The Edge of Reason or something, wasn't it? Or Edge of Human? Edge of Human or something like that. There was a video game as well. There was that was set around the same time, but that actually kind of ran concurrent events so it, it you know spanned the same general story i just feel that if you go back to that universe it, when you see the kind of grand cityscape and and it's got that brooding noir feel it feels like the end of the world it feels like the questions that are posed in it are for the end of time like kind of humanity is crumbling in on itself that it's become this this weird multi-layered decadent society with this horrible kind of seedy underlayer and if you go back to that and the big questions of you know what constitutes a life what constitutes you know a human what constitutes emotion you kind of you get the answers to those questions that were supposed to simply be posed anyway if you go back 20 years later and they say by the way we've learned nothing about it we're still treating you know replicants as slaves and and in fact no they we just program them not to feel as much doesn't that slightly undermine? I mean, wouldn't that any kind of answer, any continuation of the themes that were put in there, in a way, are actually going to fill in some of those blanks that were in the original? I can't see how, unless they go down the route of it's a similar universe and it, it's almost concurrent events and that kind of thing, unless he, he kind of dodges his way around those core issues, then I can't see how he can really marry the two but if he if he dodges that though and if he does kind of move around it so much then basically the question is well does does it count as a sequel can't you just say well i've made another sci-fi epic you know i think you'll find those comments you just made there tie into prometheus quite quite a lot we're, we're saying that quite a bit now aren't we but <laughs> let's talk about prometheus now no 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 you can you can wait for that folks um but what is interesting is that the film bombed 30 years ago, and now we're talking about making a sequel, which is quite funny, which means maybe in 30 years' time, Chris, you might get a sequel to John Carter. <laughs> Here's hoping. Um, what if you go off-world with it? You know, there's a lot of talk. Humanity is crumbling because there's not that many people left on the planet. The, the cities are overcrowded, but people are going off-world, aren't they? So this is set, what, 20 years later, is it? Something like that? 20 years after the events of Blade Runner? Or have I made that bit up entirely? Uh, well, no one really knows what's going to happen yet, do they? I, I think conjecture. it's about 40 years just so Harrison Ford can fit in and look correct. Well, I think they're going to have to shift quite a bit from uh, from LA, then I would have thought. So you're going to have, why not explore off-world? Just go to the, uh, the colonies? 
There's been wars taking place out there. You know, there's a, there's a whole spectrum of stuff that he could cover. You know, he hasn't got to limit himself to just, you know, tracking down various people, replicants or whoever, you know, in, in the grimy city. But then the question has to be why? Why bother? Why not just leave it as it is? Because it's, it's a work well, of Well, because he created such a, a fantastically rich world that people want to explore more of it. Uh, the whole um, atmosphere was drenched in style. Why not revisit it? You haven't got to tell the same story. You could do anything. You could do a lot of different things. Yeah, but then why? Why bother? Leave it. Oh. Leave it as it is, and and it, you know it's a masterpiece. Move on. Think of something else. Well, why not though? <laughs> it's a masterpiece. Go back to the. Go back to that that world that everyone loved, and show a bit more of it. But in doing so, Chris, you end up diminishing the original, which is what we're about to talk about with Prometheus. You know, what is this modern obsession with explaining everything? I don't want everything explained to me. A lot of it's just background. It's like Star Wars, you know, the Clone Wars. I didn't need to see the Clone Wars. As it turns out, I didn't see the Clone Wars. But the fact is, that was just background. It was just sort of window dressing for the story. That was all it was. We never needed to know about the background to Darth Vader or the background to the Clone Wars. It was just window dressing in the film. But there's this obsession now with shoveling you down your throat all this explanation and exposition about stuff that i don't want to know about i don't want to i don't care where the space jockeys come from in alien it's nothing to do with that it's just hr giga production design to set a tone that's all it was ever meant to be and now we've got a whole bloody film about the damn thing and, and it, it, it just diminishes the original and takes away from it and all these things do unfortunately and i'm sick of it to be honest I wish they'd leave Blade Runner alone. It's a masterpiece. I love it. I watched it about two weeks ago. It's still brilliant even now. Just leave it alone and make something else. Or get all retire. He's 70 years old now, Ridley. Just knock it on the head and retire, mate. Uh, right. I've just got another beer. But um, <laughs> in principle, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. But uh, you haven't necessarily got to explain everything away. And let's just hope he doesn't do that. You know. But what I'm saying is that's a massive world he created. There's no reason why you can't tell a different story set in that, in that world using some of the same themes but telling, going from a different tangent. You know, I want to go back to, to that LA or hear more about the off-world colonies because it, it was such a, a great environment to, uh, to explore. Alien, again, well, <laughs> I keep saying we're going to come on to that, although I think you pretty much nailed it there before. Uh, the space jockeys, did we need to know more about them? And the problem with this is that is Ridley Scott just going back to what his cult classics were and I can't think of anything new to make these days. I tried Robin Hood and that was a complete disaster. If you look at that Robin Hood, what did he do there? He went back and told the uh, the beforehand prequel story of Robin Hood. In well, the that's, vague that's, that's even Chris, yeah, what happened in, with Robin Hood was originally it was a script called Nottingham, which was about mm. The whole thing from the point it was of view going to be reversed, yeah. Which, yeah. Uh, which sounded interesting. Then it completely that, that did sound it, fantastic. Ended yeah. up making a, a sort of origin story for Robin Hood, which I couldn't care less about. The film got interesting in the last minute, and that's when it became Robin Hood. And you Hood can tell you know he's thinking that if these films I make as prequels are successes, then I can go off and make a, a sequel to it. So we got Robin Hood 2, which I really don't think you're ever going to get now. And I, I sincerely hope you don't, because it was pants. Um, and obviously, with Prometheus. <laughs> when we're now hearing it was going, it was you know it's a trilogy. There's another two movies to come after this, which will tie it into Alien quite successfully. Uh, so this whole thing, this whole start, this this Prometheus now was just a teaser, was just a taster. So if he does it with Blade Runner, then yeah, I won't be happy with that. Um, if it if that's the the angle he's, he's playing and going back to these things and going back to my roots, explain a little bit, but not everything. So people want to come back and see another movie. It's just feathering his own nest, isn't it? 
It's just it's just a cash cow. But again, in Prometheus's case, the original script was massive compared to what we've well, you and me have seen it. Um, a lot of well, listeners originally, originally have seen it. Originally, it was planned as two movies, wasn't it? But Fox wouldn't finance two films back to back. And it was colossal in theme. And I liked the idea behind that. That was that was really clever. It was bold. It was audacious. And just little bits of that have, have dripped into this version now, which. <laughs> Are we really yeah, going right. to leave it until later? Should we do it now? <laughs> Should we do it? Should we talk about Prometheus yeah, now? Yeah, well, well, things obvious now. We've talked about Blade Runner. Let's talk about Prometheus. So moving on from uh, a possible sequel to Blade Runner and and everything that that entails, obviously he's gone back and uh, he's made what can be described as a prequel to the Alien universe. So uh, Stephen and Chris, you've seen the film. No spoilers, but how did it how did it play out? First and foremost, uh, there's a lot of debate. It's not really a prequel. It's just set in the same universe. It very definitely is a prequel. It, the way I took that film, it's a prequel. There's so many references. There's so many, you know, kosher points which link up to the obvious alien universe later on and, and the, the way the plot goes in the later movies. Uh, it is almost certainly a dead ringer. It's got to be part of the alien uh, cycle. But it's set kind of a bit beforehand, obviously. Um, what I will say is this was a very, very grand idea, very ambitious Going back to find out the um, you know the birth of mankind, our creators, where we came from, again you know the place of humanity in existence and all this sort of stuff, very very heady issues, and you know that's what bold sci-fi should do. There's plenty of room and scope for this kind of movie, and Scott, you know the, one of the, the master well creators in cinema, was the man to have done it, except. The script that's made it into this version of the movie uh, is pretty poor. In fact, it's quite wretched. Visually, the film is spellbinding, awesomely well done. I will say that the first sequence, the introductory sequence, I won't say what it is, but I sat there and I was absolutely agog. That's a good word for it, I was agog. This was fantastic imagery, beautiful, something you'd never seen in the the alien uh, milieu before. Uh, and it was just, it blew me away. It was bold, it was pure, hard sci-fi, very fantastical, and I just thought, I'm in for a real, real treat with this. He's nailed it. This is going off on such a different tangent. And then it all began to fall apart. Once you met the crew, once you found out what the plot was, uh, and uh, Steve, I think you'll, you'll almost certainly agree, the atmosphere was great in the first third, and then you began to people began to explore strange places and then the cast the characters began to do rather ridiculous things which you know trained scientists and geologists and whatever just wouldn't do and uh, ridiculous contrivances occurred with monotonous you know rapidity and the final third of the movie was a complete disaster um, it just it bears all the hallmarks of having been chopped and cut down and although Ridley Scott has said, no, no, pretty much what you see on the screen, that, that's my director's cut. No way on earth. There's a lot of things missed out there. The pace is so badly uneven. After all this painstaking build-up, uh, lots of little mysteries and ambiguities thrown in there as to what's really going on, hidden agendas of certain characters. Uh, I think I'm doing pretty well with this spoiler-free stuff so far. <laughs> uh, do jump on me if I botch it up. Uh, but the final third, <laughs> ridiculous. It was pell-mell. Uh, obviously, scene sequences have been removed. I, I could tell that quite easily. 
um, and the whole thing ended up being a setup for another movie. So you were teased, you were tantalised with all these big questions and concepts, but with uh, Damon, is it Lindelhoff, uh, who wrote Lost, bloody hell, wrote Lost, again, which was like how many seasons of like build-up and like mysteries, and then at the end, oh, is that it? So basically you came up with all these mind-boggling ideas, and you just couldn't think of how to write a good way out of it. You wrote yourself into a corner, and I got the impression from this that that's exactly what he's done all over again. Um, having said that, there are lots of good points in this movie as well. Although I think it's a pretty wretched, uh, you know, uh, movie when it comes to what it's really delivered. Uh, I liked some of the sequences in it. Visually, it's a, it's a, it's be a beauty to look at. Uh, there are some galvanising sequences in it, without a doubt. Great performances from Michael Fassbender. Um, he is very definitely the man of the moment. Uh, everything everything he does, he, he's great in it. And of course, this is no spoiler. You all know this. He's the he's the android there, David, um, and he's he's fantastic. He's eerie. He's captivating, um, and you you, you sympathise with him as well. There's a, a lot of facets to a guy who's not actually a human being. <laughs> Um, it goes back to those comments we were talking about Blade Runner actually and what it is that makes you human I think there's some Blade Runner-esque moments in very definitely yeah I mean I think one of, one of the best moments uh, and again this this isn't too much of a spoiler it's very near the start it's while they're all in a you know hypersleep and all this and you see because David looks after them oh, that's a shit makes a two year journey to wherever it's going um, and you just see his life the way he his daily existence and that was Fantastic, wasn't it? Yeah, he was watching Lawrence of Arabia once. He wasn't he. He, he has a fixation with Lawrence of Arabia. And then doing his yeah. hair the same as, uh, as Peter O'Toole, which was quite playing funny. basketball yeah. whilst riding a bike and all this. And it was just pot pottering around the vast spaceship. Yeah, there was it was class. That was pure class. That uh, New Media Pace, uh, I, I adore because the fact she looks like me, my wife, <laughs> and there's she does, and especially with the hair like that, and the way it's in this movie. And uh, again, without saying too much, th there's a couple of moments in that where I actually got quite overwhelmed because um, with, with emotion because of what she was going through. And I just saw that's me, Mrs. Bloody hell! When I come home, I've, I've ordered a spacesuit, you know, <laughs> a skin-tight spacesuit. I have to say though, good actress though she is. She had a very dodgy English accent in it. It was all oh, it slipped on many occasions. Yeah, didn't it? it was. It was sounding very Scandinavian most of the time, which obviously is where she's from. But why couldn't they just hire an English actress? Or oh, in fact, why didn't they just give that part to Charlize Theron, who can do an English accent? Uh, and I would have think would have been a better choice actually, to be honest. Ah, uh, because she's the icy blonde. Yeah, I know, but whose who's actual nature is, is once again teased at, but they don't really explain. Uh, good score as well. Great score, got to say. Uh, Mark Streitenfeld, uh, who's, he did the, the Grey, I reviewed his soundtrack to that, and I was kind of like, a bit of trepidation, thinking, how is he going to approach this? We've had some great soundtracks to uh, the Alien films so far. Obviously, Jerry Goldsmith with the first one, um, James Horner with Aliens, Elliot Goldenthal with Alien 3, and uh, even the, the, the totally lousy Alien Resurrection had a terrific score by a guy who I've forgotten. Uh, no, who was it now? Oh, John Frizzell, he says, looking at the CD. <laughs> uh, and this guy, it's, it's beautiful. But again, Steve, did you get the impression that the, uh, the score was for a different movie? Yeah, the score was for a Star Trek film, which is kind of <laughs> what the plot is. The plot is really a Star Trek movie. There's a slight Superman feel to it, isn't there? There's a fa there's a, a very gentle but sort of rousing fanfare, which could go with like it's almost like um, an intergalactic uh, David Attenborough 
you know, documentary about life on other planets, and this wonderful ethereal, awe-filled score comes through, and it doesn't really fit what the visuals are telling you and where the story's going. So, so it's almost like he had, he knew where this film was meant to be going. So he went down, he composed all this, and it doesn't fit the film that's been chopped and cut down to what we've seen at the flicks, uh, which is a bit odd. And incidentally, the uh, the major theme that you hear throughout it, which is the one thing we're talking about, which is the beautiful one, he didn't write that. That was a uh, Harry Gregson Williams. So what? Once again, you know. The best part of the grey soundtrack he did was done by someone else, which I only found out after I reviewed it. So I was like, oh, do I like this guy or not? <laughs> I can't trust him. Uh, is it a horror film? Mm, I don't know. There's some moments of of tension and suspense, but it's it's bungled, wouldn't you say, Steve? You don't, yeah, I there's don't not a lot of suspense be, there. It starts off trying to be a big idea science fiction movie. And the thing about big ideas science fiction movies are they, they sound great on the page, but they very rarely work on the screen because they just look stupid. Kubrick got away with it in 2001 because he was very abstract about it. But this this is very literal big, big, big idea science fiction. And like I said, very much like some of the Star Trek movies, particularly Star Trek 1, uh, such as the motion picture, where um, you know, you've got Vija coming to look for its creator. Um, and Star Trek V, where they go and find God. I mean, it's that ludicrous. And and it feels a lot like that at times. It's like this big idea going in search of something science fiction. And that's what the score sounds like. The score is very much like um, like, a, like a Star Trek score. And it, there's one little, tiny moment where they use a bit of Goldsmith's score from Alien. And that yeah. just makes you realise how in good the his score moment. was. <laughs> it just makes you remind you how good Alien was and how terrible this film is it's awful don't go and see it don't waste your money if you're gonna have to watch it just get the blu-ray when it comes out because it really oh, isn't very good you know i, it's, I, I it's don't know about that. You, it's got is the cast are all wrong you don't care about anyone in the film so therefore you don't care who lives and dies because you don't care about them anyway um you most of them act as you said chris act stupidly i mean they're going to be trained scientists don't act like scientists no one in the film acts in a believable way at any moment the plot takes a massive left turn about two-thirds of the way through that doesn't make any sense at all and start thinking hang on where did that guy come from and who the hell's that it's just it's just badly it's just really sloppy writing um, it teases you, like you said, Chris, the whole film's like a big tease of something else. It's blatantly set in the alien world, even though they keep saying it isn't. Um, the only thing in it that's really good is, as you said, Michael Fassbender, who is absolutely brilliant playing David. Um, very much like, I mean, even the same name, actually, is a, hey, hey, uh, uh, what's his name? Hayley Josement, uh, who played David in AI. They're very similar in their performances, and his voice is very much like Hal in, in 2001, which I suppose is also deliberate. Um but, but as you say, production design is great. Uh, the, the effects are great. You know, the 3D was very good too. Um, it looked great. But, you know, I just felt what a complete waste of money and time and effort for something that I just don't care about. And once again, like I said earlier on about Blade Runner, I don't care where the space jockeys come from. I, it's just, I mean, it's just background for Alien. It just creates atmosphere. Well, now, they, now they've just ruined Alien for me, basically, along with all the other crap sequels Aliens had to put up with. But only basically, if you're going to watch, watch Alien and watch Aliens and leave all the rest of it well alone, including Prometheus, unfortunately. Oh, no, I'm not going to go as far as to say that. Uh, there's no way on earth that this is... Um, diminished alien to me or even aliens um, th those films still exist and they're perfect I, I, in fact I've watched Alien since and and I, the reason I, I watched it was not to like oh to remove the poison of Prometheus it was because what this film did as well as well as generating lots and lots of debate in the two days since I've seen it I've done nothing but talk about it and um, I know two big circles of mates one, one, one circle of mates I went to see it with all of whom despised it the circle of mates who went to see it afterwards 
I spoke to them on the phone, what do you think of it? They all hated it as well. Incidentally, the audience I saw it with, when we walked out, there was a lot of stunned, you know, is that it? Sort of like looks on people's faces and a few people saying like, that was crap. <laughs> I didn't hear, I didn't hear any, anyone say that they liked it, but I thought, well, yeah, that was botched. But I want to go away and think about it and I've done nothing but think about it and I've talked about it and I've come back home and I watched Alien because I wanted to get that atmosphere again. I wanted to see the derelict, I wanted to see the space jockey, but it wasn't ruined for me. In fact, I found it quite easy to, to forget about Prometheus, which is probably the most damning thing of all, because if he wants to try and explore this universe and create something new, build up this massive mythology, uh, I went back to the original and I would find it very easy to forget about what he's done this time round. Uh, so, I don't know, what you make of that what you will, but, uh, but you know, <laughs> go and see it. <laughs> Well, what I, will, what I will say though is that we obviously try not to take any spoilers here in the, in this commentary. But um, if you've seen any of the trailers, then you have seen the film. Basically, there is very little in the film that isn't given away by the trailers, uh, unfortunately. Which meant that when I went to go and see it, there wasn't much surprise involved because I pretty much knew what was going to happen from the beginning. Uh, and, uh, and ultimately, I got exactly. There was probably one little bit that I didn't know about from the trailers, and that was a stupid plot twist two thirds of the way through the film, anyway. Um, involving Guy Pierce, um, and I don't understand why they hired Guy Pierce actually. <laughs> and so, some <laughs> of the worst, old... the worst old age makeup we've ever yeah, yeah, seen. Why don't they just hire an old man to play the part? <laughs> why hire a young guy? I, well, mean, I assumed they were going to de-age him or something. He was going to end up being younger in some way, which would explain well, why they hired the, the rumors are floating around that he filmed a lot more footage for the movie, so you have got the younger Guy Pierce. I know obviously got the viral. Um, speech yeah. thing that he gave. Yeah, you got that but stuff. Apparently, I don't know how true this is, but there are people saying that he is in the movie in earlier sequences where he's younger. Um, so they, they kept him for the old age part because for continuity purposes. And so this kind of ties in with like, really, you have got a longer cut of this movie, which almost certainly is going to see the light of day at some point. Whether it would change anything drastically, I seriously doubt it, but it might make that final third a bit smoother and just more, more coherent because at the moment it's it's a jumbled mess We're, I'm dying to talk about one particular bit and how it affects the rest of the film but we can't damn it damn oh, these right, rules right. too many rules <laughs> so, so let's move on to how this looks uh, obviously it was filmed on the, the Red Epic Steve um, filmed in 3D very much uh, similar to what Peter Jackson's doing but obviously at 24 frames a second and not 48 so how did it look on the big screen uh, I watched it. I saw it in a movie in a cinema with uh, a Sony 4K projector, actually. So it looked absolutely spectacular. Um, you know, in terms of the use of, I mean, I think Scott's use of 3D was subtle. It wasn't uh, very in your face. There was no real negative parallax in it. It was all like like many a lot of films these days. It's all very much positive parallax. You know, beyond the screen rather than in front of the screen. But uh, yeah, it's lots of nice framing. I mean, he's, you know, Scott's got a gorgeous eye. He, he, he can he can frame a shot. He knows how to make things look good. And they, there are some really nice shots. The effects are very good. The set design's good. It looked lovely. Although, interestingly, quite a bit of crosstalk um, in the cinema I was in, which surprised me. Uh, um, you know, uh, I could see a fair bit of crosstalk on the screen, which I wasn't expecting at the movies. But um, otherwise, yeah, the 4K image looked, looked gorgeous. Um, and, and in that sense, you know, okay, visually it is stunning at times, and, and you know, and, and Scott's still got that wonderful eye for a shot, but but unfortunately he's let down by a really ropey script. 
Well, back back onto the visual side of it, I saw it in 3D as well, and uh, I was putting down the crosstalk to my the, the hangover I had, but um, I didn't think the 3D was all that necessary. It it yeah, it was it, it was very painted. The, the film it, in 2D, I'm sure, looks absolutely gorgeous as well, because as we have you already said, really Scott's eye for detail and composition is superlative. But uh, the 3D didn't really add a great deal to me. You know, apart from when there's certain like little the, the probes are going down the um, the tunnels and that, and the lights going over you and all this. So there, there were some little moments there, but it wasn't wasn't grandstanding. It stuff. wasn't necessary. Was it? it wasn't no, part of the story. It wasn't the way that Hugo was made with 3D. It had a lot of, being a lot of depth to, to it, but it wasn't spectacular. I didn't think. Um, I, I don't think the 3D is all that essential to this, which is a bit of a shame because he did start out making it with the whole 3D idea in mind anyway. So I kind of thought he'd have added more to it, but no, it didn't do anything wrong, put it that way. Okay, so uh, that's Chris and Steve's take on Prometheus. If you have seen the film and uh, you want to add your comments, then do so in the feedback section underneath this podcast. Uh, We're going to move things on. We're going to uh, go back to Blu-ray, and we're going to look at a review that Chris did recently, uh, which was Woman in Black. So uh, tell us all about it, Chris. Yeah, The Woman in Black, uh, Hammer's return to glory continues. Um, it's a it's a very famous tale. It was Obviously, it was, a, it was a book, first of all, which was very successful. And it was a TV movie, which was very, very successful and uh, genuinely terrifying. Uh, we kind of had high hopes that the film would also be a bit of a book cleanser. Clen- cleanser? Clencher. Uh, a sphincter tingler. And... Daniel Radcliffe, ex of Harry Potter and Hogwarts, steps into the role of what is, you know, probably a slightly older man, really, as, as his character, who's lost his wife, who died giving birth to his, his child, his son, uh, who's four years old. So, but he's a he's an accountant. He's a works for a firm of solicitors. Gets the job to go off to this rather isolated and spooky old mansion, which is cut off from the mainland, way up north. Uh, this causeway gets submerged by the tides, and he's just got to go and sort out the uh, the books and the the papers and the documents of this old woman who died there. Of course, when he gets there, as any old mansion, old house, old spooky enclave, the people in the area don't want him there because he's a stranger, he's a out of towner. And once he arrives, bad things begin to happen because in this particular area, they have the woman in black, this spectre who haunts the area and tends to cause the deaths of young children. Bit of a shocker, not a nice spectre to have around. So once he starts probing about all these old documents and staying overnight in this place, because uh, he, won't, he won't get the work done if he goes back to the hotel. So, uh, you know, things start turning nasty and the little kids begin to die all over again and he gets haunted over his stay while he's there. Uh, but being a man of action as well, and you know, made of Victorian starch, this guy is also going to unravel the mystery and try and appease the spirit. And whether he does so or not, you'll have to find out for yourselves. Uh, film was a phenomenal success at the flicks, uh, mainly because, you know, Daniel Radcliffe, that, that's the, that is the major reason. Hammer, you know, get, we're coming, you know, coming back to their former glories and they're, they're saying, the most successful movie we ever made in Britain, oh, it's fantastic. Uh, but it's because of him. That's why. It is a good film, though. I've got to say, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I saw it a couple of times at the flicks, and I've watched it several times on Blu-ray. Uh, it was cut, of course, in the UK, very infamously, to get the 12A rating. About six seconds of footage was cut. 
a no wallet was cut and sadly in the UK version um, it's still removed. However, I reviewed the American version where that footage is back in there. Is, um, is it an integral part? Of the, I mean, is it a big cut? No. In terms of the no, but it, it adds a bit of it does add a bit of uh, visceral weight to it. You know, the film is a shocker anyway. The very fact that you're seeing kids dying uh, and the the whole mood and tension of it it's quite serious. There's lots of um, you know, obviously go, don't go down that spooky corridor and the sudden you know stingers and bangs and doors clanging and sudden shock cuts of the spectre behind him or arriving from different parts of the frame uh, which are just guarantees to make you jump out of your seat well they're just knee jerk you know reactionary stuff that's that's easy but there's a prevailing mood of real doom and ominous tension and suspense and pure dread there's only one sequence where I, I didn't like I won't go into detail on it but um you know it just seemed a bit preposterous to me to to go digging around in the in the marshland um, and sort of drag the, the the suspense down a bit for me, but that spectre is terrifying without a doubt. You've got there's a hint of J horror there, uh, you know, because this this woman's bedraggled face, um, black hair, and this pale cadaverous uh, countenance, and and she's she's not nice, mate. She isn't just a ghost that just appears and moans occasionally. This thing does cause some serious harm, uh, and the scenes of the kids, you know who are sort of invoked to to kill themselves uh, are they're shocking mate you don't have to be a parent to um to really feel that one i saw this at the flicks and there were lots of screams and gasps and that but a predominantly young audience gotta say you know but that's because of mr radcliffe of course and i've got to say the guy acquits himself very well although you know he's obviously yeah, he's diminutive in size they've given him sides you know they've given this very pale look in fact he's quite got bushy eyebrows too in another story he could have been the ghost or you know maybe the um the vaguely lycanthropic gardener you know something like that he's, he's got a kind of creepy look to him isn't anyway that the kind of point though chris in the point that he's kind of um emotionally dead before he even gets to the, the house mm. that's the kind of well, counterpoint yeah, they're making yeah isn't it? i suppose i suppose so and the, <laughs> but the, the moments where you think hang on he's too He's too young to have a four-year-old kid. In actual fact, he's not. He could actually have fathered one. And especially in that day and age, back in the Victorian times, you know, he he would have been a man you know, at the age of seventeen. You know, he he'd have been he'd have already been working down the mines for the last five years before progressing onto a clerical job. So you know, but it's when he gets Siren Hines passes him a you know a, a a glass of brandy. You know, it, it, here you are, Arthur. Have a drink to calm your nerves. And <laughs> Radcliffe is just completely dwarfed by this huge glass. And to see him raise it to his lips, you, you, almost to make you go, oh, no, you're too young for that. And yet this he's still buying into the fact that he's a dad and he's got this job and he's a serious bloke. Um, they have changed a few bits from the uh, original story um, and the original TV movie. Uh, and, you, you know, there's a sort of Hollywood angle to the ending but I liked it. I wouldn't say what it is, obviously, but I, I liked the, the sort of poetry to it and the symmetry to you know the way the, way the film is constructed. Kind of like the way they they've done that. Uh, it looks tremendous uh, on Blu-ray. Yeah, fantastic. Good good image. It's not the most sharp of images, but then it wasn't it wasn't filmed that way anyway. It's got a kind of um, downbeat, dour sort of look to it. Colours are slightly muted. Um, you know, but it works in the particular aesthetic that they're after. The mood is all there. Sound-wise, yeah, very good. You've got some alarmingly good stingers in this, 
which even though I'd seen the film several times and I knew the exact second when these things were going to happen, like bloody um, Ben Gardner's head lolling out the hole in the boat in Jaws, you know the exact second, but if it's done well, it's still going to get you. Well, this got this has got moments like that, and uh, I leapt out of my, my skin on several occasions. Is it quite scary? Yeah, I'd say it was, yeah. It's effective, is it? Yeah, it, it definitely it definitely gets you. You know, it's there's nothing new to this genre really, and this doesn't do anything that's particularly unique. You have an upstairs corridor which has several doors off it, and he's forever having to walk down this corridor. There's something behind each and every one of those doors. One door won't open for a while, so he goes down to go and get the axe to chop it open because he's heard something behind it, and when he comes back up again, that bloody door's wide open. Now. It gets you, and to see the spectre out the corner of your eye or in the back of the frame somewhere, suddenly coming towards it, yeah, it, it definitely works. But I'm a sucker for these things. I know, I know plenty of people who are horror devotees, but ah, it was just kid stuff. Well, it, it worked for me. I've seen some of the nastiest stuff going, and uh, and the, the scariest stuff going. And to be honest, you know, it got me. And I, what I like about this this film as well is that, yeah, because of Radcliffe being in it, it's almost like. Um, my first horror movie, my first serious horror movie. I did discuss this a while ago in in, in earlier reviews as well, uh, but when it, they gave it that 12A, oh god yeah, it's been cut down for purely commercial reasons, damn them to hell, I don't like that at all, or any kind of censorship for that matter. But when I looked deeper into that and thought about it, what that did, that gave a lot of people who wouldn't normally have been able to see that movie the chance to go and see a proper scary film at the flicks and to come out and say, well, you know, I survived that. God, it, you know, I crapped myself while I was in there, but I want to see more horror movies. And in a way, that, that's, that's a good thing for a genre ghoul like myself. You know, I, I've only got to applaud that uh, for what it's done for, for horror movies and, <laughs> and corrupted young minds. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I don't like censorship. So, obviously, if you've got the chance to play the American disc, which I think is region free, I can't remember. No, it's not. It's not region free, mate. It's not region free. Um, so, but if you can play American discs, and you really are that bothered about six seconds of cuts, obviously go for the American one. Um, extras wise, oh, don't bother. It, it, the American disc only has two little puff pastry EPK things on it, which are absolute trash. And you've got a really dire, boring, bland commentary from the director, James Watkins, and the screenwriter, Jane Goldman, Mrs. Um, Mrs. Jonathan Ross, who's made a career out of adapting other people's stuff, like Kick-Ass and um, Stardust, but not a bad screenwriter. And, you know, uh, this, this film certainly works. But it's a, I love comedy tracks, and this is an appalling example of one. It's just pure back-slapping and self-praise. Uh, oh, I, I love how you shot this bit there. Oh, it really, really works. Yeah, yeah, I, I like how I did it as well. Oh, look, I like this bit as well. Oh, look, look, doesn't he? He looks marvellous there. You can really see the emotions in his eyes, can't you? Oh, just tell us about the story. Tell us about the production. Give some anecdotes. No, it's lousy. But it's uncut. I mean, it looks and sounds great. So, Woman in Black, yeah, it, it gets a thumbs up from me, without a doubt. Just, just one point, Chris. It's, it's not really censorship. It wasn't the BBFC that that forced the cuts. It was the distributor wanting a 12A certificate. The BBFC were happy to give it a 15 uncut. So I think there's a difference between pure censorship and the point of view of not being allowed to see something, and something where it's done for purely commercial reasons to have a wider audience. 
because uh, obviously a lot of uh, a lot of um, Radcliffe's fans are going to be Potter fans, less you know, younger than twelve. So I, I guess censorship is not quite the right word. I would say it's more of a commercial decision on the part of the distributor. Annoying for the rest of us, but I understand why they did it. Yeah, yeah, I I go along with that. Yeah, you're right. Um, it, it's still a, it's still a shame, but you know, there's there's benefits to it. As I said before, those kids have now seen their proper horror movie at the flicks. I mean, they've probably all seen things far worse at home, but when you see the flicks properly with an audience, that kind of movie, that's what you remember. That's more of the uh, the galvanising, you know, um, effect that a, a horror film should have on people. So. I, in that respect, I, I I don't so much mind it. My equivalent was watching The Shining when I was a kid. That scared the crap out of me. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, and this, this film fit, fits in with that ilk. Yeah, you've, you've got that brooding, horrible uh, feeling of shut-in violence. And the thing is, it's not just a spooky ghost, it's a dangerous ghost. So you've got to remember that. There's a, I'm tired to talk about some of the, uh, the shock moments in it, but I won't, obviously. Um, Siren Hines is good in it as well. Um, although he does have moments of looking a bit like a uh, Ro- Rolly Burke in QC from the Fast Show, and who else have we got in it? Oh, there is the woman who plays his wife in it, Janet Janet McTeer, I think her name is. Oh, she's she's awful. She's about the the one downside to it, but not in it that much. O- overall, no great, good, solid production. Hammer, come on, get some more going. Ah, now I just remembered something. They're going to do a sequel to it, aren't they? There's rumours they're doing a sequel to this. I don't know too much about this. Followed by a prequel, presumably. (laughs) Here we go again. (laughs) They're going to explain it all away. Yeah, yeah. The story about be like Ring, Ring, uh, Ring Three, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Was the prequel to Ring, wasn't it? I mean, obviously, Daniel Radcliffe is a replicant, and there's a space jockey down in the basement. So it's (laughs) what are they thinking? So yeah, but I would recommend it. Moving on from that review. Chris, uh, you did uh, mention J-Horror, and let's turn to Mark. I mean, uh, Asian cinema has always had a, a hot streak when it comes to horror. I mean, a lot of uh, Hollywood remakes of uh, some Japanese, certainly Japanese uh, horror films, Mark. So, um, you know, my example of a Japanese horror would be Shogun Assassin, uh, but we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> Actual horror movie, Japanese movies. classic. <laughs> But I, I guess you're looking at things like the ring and and, and stuff like that. So, you know, that in mind, Mark, uh, which Asian horrors would you recommend that are on the same wavelength as what Chris has been talking about? Well, I I really don't think you can go far wrong with the uh, the original Ringu. Um, a lot of people would have known uh, Hideo Nakata's film from the US remake. Uh, it it was watered down. It it felt more. Hollywood, there's there's always this kind of weird feeling when, say, an Asian director then makes something that isn't in his native language. You always feel like there's there's something that's been well, quite literally lost in translation. The original Ringu was, even though it sounds like Pingu, I, I always call it the Ring. But since the the US remake came came out, you've got to call it Ringu. Um, it was very much in, in that mould of what you don't see is what actually unsettles you. It, it was all about um, those little hidden things in, in the movie. Basically, the mystery was what slowly pulled the rug out from underneath you. And and I think there's there's a general style, in, in certainly in, in modern horror, where horrors and chillers, where they, they feel the need to 
explain the plot i if there's a ghost if there's if there's you know a phantom if there's something there if there's a curse three quarters of the way through a film you will know exactly why they're there what they're doing and at that moment it stops being quite as scary or or you see the monster you know i think we've talked about night of the demon before um what ringu did was it took something very mundane such as watching a video which obviously everyone was doing and it, it somehow made that scary it was um it was small little moments and and, and you wouldn't think that just a basically a, a child staring at you that you can't really see anything on would be scary but it, it's that motionless stance of this you know weird corpse of a, of a japanese girl that just it was very creepy and it and it has one of the classic chiller endings as far as i'm concerned and it, and it's still pretty scary to this day and it, it goes in that oh, it's terrifying it is it, it's absolutely terrifying and the whole film is about people being quite literally frightened to death and it puts you right in there and it, it the way the the final shot is, is composed it it's placing you right in the protagonist's right in his place and you and you're watching well I won't give too much away in case anyone actually wants to go and watch it on my recommendation but it's yeah japanese horror has had to should we say move around the fact that it hasn't had the budget of you know the big us slick horrors and so therefore it's had to go down the chiller route a bit more and then they've overplayed that to some extent um with things like the the remakes um and the westernization of it and as the money comes in you see more and more of what you're supposed to be scared of which actually detracts from it but if if you go back to things like ringu and and, and the grudge to a lesser extent um then you can't go far wrong with that it's very much playing on the audience's mind and what you what you think you're seeing even if it's just for a, for a split second it will certainly unnerve you and both those films brought into brought into play things like vhs or or phones and it was placing the emphasis on things that people actually had around them at the time so it actually scared them it, it was a bit like um with you know poltergeists and and things like that where it's it's in the family home it's finding something that that every audience member can actually say well i've got that or i live in a house like that and so therefore it kind of ties it into your own little fears well it's the beauty of the urban myth as well though isn't it which is again which is a uniquely uniquely uh, modern sort of thing uh, you know, oh, if you say his name five times in the mirror, he's going to suddenly appear. If you watch this video, oh, you're going to die. And it, it, you know, people, kids do it. You would do it. You challenge yourself. You test yourself. So that kind of story is always going to work. You know, and yeah, definitely that that finale is a, a shocker beyond belief. But even some of the older ones as well. I like some of the older ones like Kurenko and Onibaba the Hole, uh, which were just again spooky spectral ghost stories but they had a, a very dark subversive and sexual undercurrent and again you had the pale-faced oriental ladies with bedraggled dark hair looming out of the air uh, the mist or the reeds and luring people to their deaths and it's just something without a doubt grotesquely frightening about a beautiful but eerie cadaverous woman um which again you know which is part of you know um woman in black as well fits into all that sort of thing but it's certainly the, the oriental side of these uh, made them more satanic and more evil and thoroughly nasty so yeah if you if you want spooky dark-haired women 
go east, young man. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I totally agree. I, I mean, I spent nine years living in Asia, and there's a, there's a strong undercurrent in their, within their culture of ghost stories in particular, both written, verbal, and, and the movies. Uh, and they do them really well because, as Chris was saying on his review of The Woman in Black, you know, quite often they'll create a really disconcerting atmosphere. And it's all about what you don't see as much as what you do that makes it so scary. There's a great um, movie across the South China Sea slightly to Hong Kong. There's a great Hong Kong movie called The Eye, which was remade in Hollywood but with Jessica Alba. But the original one, The Eye, I, I scared the life out of me. It was absolutely really well conceived and had some really good sound design in it as well. Basically, it's this woman who's, who's blind and she gets her eyesight back. And then when she realizes she can see things she's not supposed to be able to see. Um, and it's genuinely quite unnerving. The bit in the um, lift. It's the bit yeah, in the lift. Yeah, that yeah, you. the bit in the lift. The oh. bit in the lift is terrifying. Uh, so, if anyone wants a recommendation, my personal recommendation would be check out the original version of The Eye. Obviously, Mark's mentioned The Grudge and, and Ring. Um, all worth checking out. Dark Water, that's another good Japanese ghost story. That's story. a great yeah. one. Dark yeah, Water. Dark Water's scary too, worth seeing. Um, moving over to Europe, uh, there's The Orphanage, which was, I think, produced by Guillermo del Toro. That's that's brilliant because not only is it scary, but it's also you could interpret it two different ways. Either it's all just in a mind, or it's all supernatural. Oh, it's, it's, it's quite open-ended. Incredibly moving that that, that yeah, film. Yeah, very good. Um, there's also Devil's Backbone, which was I was going to say the Devil's Toro's. Backbone, but really, that's, that's really good. That that's kind of a, a weird one because it's it is very moving as well. It it kind of straddles that line between almost slightly sentimental and scary at the same time. It, it it's very much through a child's eyes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and honourable mention must go to a personal favourite of mine, which is The Others, which um, which is set in a farmhouse in Jersey. And I watched it when I was living in Jersey, living in a farmhouse, and wow. scared the crap out of me. <laughs> and you've got Eric Sykes in it as well. Yeah. Who's scary? Eric Sykes. <laughs> yeah, it's terrifying, isn't it? That, that's it, a film of great sound design, that one, though. Yeah, definitely. The, the running footsteps across the air. Well, on the, the the room above it, but it's on the ceiling as far as she's concerned, and it moves all the way across the room. It's genuinely terrifying. Real yeah, good effect. That, that was that was a very brown trousers film for me. I think. <laughs> well, sadly, that brings us to the end of uh, the movies podcast for this month. We've run out of time, uh, but thanks uh, to the guys for their comments on the films this evening. If you've got any thoughts. Uh, for yourselves if, on anything that we've discussed within the podcast then you can uh, add your thoughts to the feedback thread underneath this podcast in the podcast forum don't forget you can also follow us on twitter at av forums or at stephen withers with a ph or at phil hinton uh, we're also on facebook facebook.com forward slash av forums for all the latest reviews news and so on and uh, don't forget the other podcasts that we publish every month. On the 14th, we have the Games Podcast. 21st, uh, this month, we got a special home cinema podcast. More details about that on the website as we get closer to it. Uh, on the 28th, we have the podcast Extra. And back again on the 7th of July is the next Movies Podcast. So my thanks to Chris, Steve and Mark. Thanks very much, guys. Cheers, Phil. Okay, cheers. Cheers, Phil. And this is Phil Hinton saying thanks for listening and we'll see you again soon. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content including sound clips and music is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.